Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a warm day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by James Vero. James is the CEO of Westfield Medical Group, a UK manufacturer based in Radstock, Somerset, which specialises in the production of single-use sterilisation barrier systems. James, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you, Scott. Pleased to be here. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about gathering different perspectives on leadership. And leadership has really been put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the whole COVID-19 situation and different firms having to navigate their way through that. Tell me, for somebody in your line of work, how has it been trying to get through the last few weeks? Because I can imagine it's been quite a challenge. Yes, it got it. Like, uh, as for most people in most industries, it's it's changed everything from uh, the way of working and uh, the way that, uh, you lead and coordinate the business um, to so kind of in the detail, some specific things you just couldn't see uh, happening and having to sort of firefight uh, almost on a, on a daily basis. I think there have been some positives to it, though, in the, in the way that the basic leadership of the company, we're, I mean, we're a relatively small company. We're 120 employees, um, and there is a, a small sort of management team um, there. And we, I put together. Well, we decided because we're all walking, working from home. That uh, first thing every morning would be a. We initially called it a sort of coronavirus meeting. I thought what we would be experiencing was a, a daily body count, perhaps, and uh, a daily survival meeting. Um, but it turned into uh, a positive in that we are much better informed uh, uh, as a company of uh, managing to get updates more widely distributed on how we're doing in terms of uh, uh, some of our key raw material procurement challenges, our planning challenges, and some sales opportunities that have arisen. We're um, lucky to be in a, an industry that uh, still has uh, demand. Um, it's not all uh, positive. We've lost some what we might call bedrock business because non-elective surgeries have been pushed back and that was our bread and butter. Mm. But we do have some unexpected opportunities coming forward. And uh, really guiding the business through this has involved much better communication, which is odd because we're not physically face-to-face uh, anymore. Absolutely. And uh, that's posed um, a completely different uh, challenge um, in itself, hasn't it? Maintaining effective communication uh, throughout this uh, crisis, because that's a hugely important uh, part of uh, being a a good leader, isn't it? Uh, Maintaining communication with one's uh, team and one's employees. Yes, it's very important. I I mean, I suppose my my biggest concern has been out on on the shop. I've not physically been to our offices for a month. And I, and I feel bad about that because a key part of leadership, or certainly my style of leadership in a manufacturing business, I've always worked in manufacturing. I've always felt um, it necessary to be, um, I'm a fairly old school, I suppose, and I walk the shop floor every day. I know uh, some of the people, or most, I know all of the people down there and talk to them each day and make them feel part of uh, the Westfield uh, team uh, because we're not a big multinational. I've worked in big multinationals where that kind of uh, relationship is more difficult. But we're a close-knit company, and I've not been able to do that for uh, a month. I mean, I could go to the site, and I probably will um, in the near future, but I am, so far anyway, trying to limit um, uh, travel in line with the government guidelines, although I think I I would get a pass on if uh, it were necessary for me to be there. Um, And that's been the most difficult thing. but our operations director is physically on site every day and has, um, you know, that that part of it is really delegated to him. And, I mean, our, our workforce is quite inspiring because, they're, you know, it's those people who are most at risk. Uh, the nature of the manufacturing operation means that for certain parts of that factory, it is not possible to maintain a two-metre distance. We, of course, put plenty of precautions in place, but... Um, it's still, uh, you know, a challenge, and they they they're aware that there is some risk there. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very, 
admire them greatly. And I've tried to make sure via the operations director that they are aware of uh, how um, uh, grateful I am for, for what they, they've been doing. Um, but unfortunately, my only communication directly with them is, is in written form. But uh, you know, that is a key part of the leadership message at this time. And we've been very lucky. And there are so many stories um, at the moment of uh, how um, this time of difficulty has really brought the best out in people and that people have really gone about their daily tasks and continue to work um, without any sort of complaint. And that's hugely um, important, isn't it, um, in terms of the trust that you have with your employees to continue working either remotely or having to go in and commute on site. I mean, that's massively important as a leader, making sure that that trust is there. And I think company culture is also really important in instilling that mentality within employees, isn't it? It, it, It's been very important to get us through this. And and actually, you know, I think, I think productivity has actually improved in many ways. I mean, on on the shop floor, it's really the, the, the same as it was, but uh, Elsewhere throughout uh, our small company, I mean, the customer service team is largely home-based. We did react early when we saw this coming and made sure that we tested and had everyone set up with the appropriate hardware and software to be able to work from home. This involved uh, buying lots of laptops and uh, installing different software and working out who was going to do what. But we were doing that, in, luckily, in, in early March before things got uh, you know really difficult and um, it, it's been quite inspiring that people have um, really stepped up to this there's yeah I mean you might think that um, or one might think that uh, working from home might lead to uh, you know difficult to check up on people but if you've got the right culture there and the right spirit there we seem to have a Dunkirk spirit at Westfield Medical I mean I think mm. for one thing people are extremely grateful to be working in an industry that is still producing uh, and I think that may be part of uh, part of it but it's, it's also uh, a culture has developed over the, the past couple of years of kind of the Westfield uh, family and it uh, we, we went through a hard time for completely unconnected reasons a couple of years ago and we've come out of that in a much more positive state and that's helped uh, to inspire the culture. We've always been, certainly during my tenure, a very communicative uh, company um, in that uh, we're all we're familiar with each other. We, we do regular updates. And this is a key part of um, uh, leadership. And this, this, this precedes this crisis time, but it has helped us as we uh, navigate through it. Mm. And in terms of that leadership model um, that you have um, in sort of imposed on the uh, the business. Um, what would you say are the influences behind that? Well, I, 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 I'm fairly long in the tooth. I've been around a bit. <laughs> and uh, I've worked mainly for large multinationals, a lot of them American multinationals, and um, but also for smaller companies too. And so I've seen all different aspects uh, of leadership. I've seen the more faddy sort of uh, latest uh, management uh, techniques. I'm actually fairly old school and I'm much happier with the genuine, um, old-fashioned, um, hands-on familiarity, good communication. My influences really have come um, from just observing uh, uh, other successful leaders out there. Um, the um, co- uh, constant updates and communication, uh, the walking the shop floor, these are things I saw in... Mm going way back to when I first started out and um, by having um, what you hear from uh, employees in the manufacturing business which is what I've always been in is that um, they can feel quite distant from the leadership uh, and they feel good about uh, seeing someone uh, clearly show that they really care uh, about the company about the performance and about the about the employees and really, there's, there's a couple of people, I won't name them on this, but there's a couple of people who I've witnessed behaving in that way in, in the dim and distant past, but it stuck with me. And, and having been through the whole, uh, in my career, all sorts of different styles of management, I come back to just that uh, you know, really straightforward, common sense, old-fashioned approach of making people feel that you care uh, and making them feel part of the team. 
And that's um, comes back to that word humility, uh, doesn't it? Um, I think that's really important for a leader to show that they are very much on a level with their employees, as you say, and do very much care yeah. about the uh, the greater goals, as it were. Um, but interestingly as well, um, there are examples of um, really, really good leaders who are just humble individuals, aren't they, in that way? People who don't necessarily stick their head above the parapet and people who also are very much out of almost the public eye, as it were. Because what I do think is that there is this temptation when we think of leaders sometimes to think of sports personalities, politicians and celebrities. Whereas really good leaders, in fact, especially in the business environment, can often go under the radar somewhat, can't they? Well, they can do, um, and uh, I'm I'm a fairly um, uh, extrovert uh, person and fairly visible. Uh, but yes, the unsung heroes, for example, in, in Westfield Medical, um, as you, as you can imagine, uh, for example, um, during this time, uh, we we did have to talk to uh, our bank. We had to explain to them that we had various um, cash challenges. Uh, as I said, we've had some decline in our core business partly offset by new opportunities. But um, there are also issues about raw material procurement. So we've had to take a decision to strategically stockpile some uh, raw materials, which squeezes our cash. We've had some customers ask if they can delay or cancel um, orders. And so there's, we knew that we were going to go through a difficult period. So we had to talk to our bank. And our, and our finance director is one of these unsung heroes who's uh, not only managed his small team remotely very effectively um, but has um, helped uh, deliver some banking support that was that, that is going to tide us over now uh, you know if things get really bad we'll still be uh, okay because of uh, the way that he's worked and presented uh, stuff with the bank and I've made sure people are aware of that, but um, meanwhile, he's just a quite unassuming guy running a very effective small team of, of four people. Um, and he's uh, done some very important things uh, behind the scenes, and that's all, all part of leadership too. I just, I think it, 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 um, a management team or a leadership team needs to be a combined uh, talent. It, it, it does need a, some sort of um, a high profile person to be the one you know out there and, and joining it all together and uh, um, explaining what's going on but it also needs uh, uh, yeah uh, I think as you put it down some heroes and those leaders uh, who are quiet and unassuming uh, who don't uh, who aren't as visible but whose contribution is in terms of leadership is just as important Exactly, because leadership does certainly have uh, very many different faces and it's important to remember that. And if you were to uh, give uh, some advice to uh, the next generation of um, emerging leaders, for example, James, people who are about to start their first day in leadership roles, perhaps, what sort of advice would you have to give them? Well, um, I I, I think, uh, as I've said earlier in this discussion, I I, I think, uh, you know, with the benefit of age and experience, actually, some of the um, obvious common sense uh, things are what you should never lose sight of. And, uh, for, for a young person who would be pursuing their own, uh, quite quite reasonably, be pursuing their own career ambitions, I would I would still say, you know, don't forget. It's such a cliche, but don't forget the most important thing about a business is its uh, people, and. Um, Always maintain uh, that humility and uh, and contact and understanding of the business. Um, I think it's very important to have uh, an all-round understanding of the business too, uh, and don't uh, don't over delegate different areas. You, know, you need to have an understanding of finance, of marketing, of uh, customer service uh, challenges, and production, and some of the technical side. You can't be an expert in in all these fields, but it's important to constantly get an all-round view uh, of what's happening in the business so that you can make uh, informed decisions. And and always um, it, it, you know, asking for um, advice and consulting is a is a sign of strength and not uh, and not weakness. So, uh, and, and I suppose the other thing is, uh, as as everybody, I've made plenty of mistakes in, in my career, and the best thing really is to acknowledge that and correct it and um, 
uh, you know, and learn from it and, and move on. Rather than, I think in the long run, I mean, there are, I have come across people in my career who, um, who are only really interested in their own career progression. Uh, but I think it is better to be uh, an honest uh, and straightforward person and to acknowledge mistakes and uh, to, um, you know, to, to always be inclusive in your management style. I think that's incredibly uh, sound advice, James, um, to surround yourself as a leader with positive individuals, experienced individuals who can advise you and who can get the best out of you and vice versa. But also as well to embrace failure and not be afraid of failing and facing criticism and being willing to learn from that, because I think that is hugely important. And some among the younger generation may even be afraid of trying things and getting things wrong just because of a fear of failure, whereas we should be telling them really to embrace that going forward. Yes, so as long as you don't make the same mistake twice, <laughs> then, then absolutely, you know, failure is, uh, is a good thing in that sense. It's a, it's a positive uh, learning experience, and it's particularly important at the, the early stage of career that you know this. I've, I've made plenty of mistakes, <laughs> but um, I'm still here. Absolutely, and if we do think about the uh, the future now, James, before we do wrap things up today, um, do tell me what you imagine the next uh, twelve months holds for yourself and for Westfield Medical, and what you really hope to achieve in that time, particularly in navigating the pandemic and then emerging from the other side. Yes, well, like many businesses, we are having to make some guesses as to how long this will continue for. Um, we have sort of different uh, model. We we we'll need to be flexible if our assumptions are wrong. We have different models uh, of that, um, and so that our immediate uh, uh, priority, of course, will be to, to get to, through this. We hope very much that our good luck uh, continues. Good luck being well. We we still have uh, demand. We're getting some unexpected new opportunities, which may play out into the long run as well. But good luck in well, we're, we're lucky in also in that we're in uh, North Somerset, which is um, has not been as badly hit yet. Because so, one of my biggest concerns at the start of all this was that this would sweep through the workforce and stop us from producing. Now, um, touching wood, of course, I think uh, that hasn't happened, and hope that uh, continues. But longer run, the, longer term than than that, it opened our eyes a bit to and given us some new contacts, opened our eyes to new opportunities and put us in touch with some new people. Um, and we can see longer-term collaboration with that. So there's a combination of building on some of the unexpected new opportunities, but then also reverting to, um, it, within the next 12 months, uh, reverting, I'd say reverting. We, before this crisis started, we were pursuing some exciting new opportunities for growth in our export markets. And that, I hope, uh, will uh, resume. And those growth opportunities come mainly from innovation and, and new product uh, development. We'll also be looking um, to uh, probably increase our capacity if we can, which will, need, which will mean some new uh, investments. But we think that um, so long as this crisis doesn't continue forever, uh, there, there are still those growth opportunities that we were exploring uh, before uh, the crisis began. I also think within the next 12 months that uh, a whole new way of uh, office working will have evolved. Mm. This has been un- un- unexpectedly and surprisingly uh, successful. Uh, I will still be uh, on site frequently, but you know we, we're looking around and thinking, this has worked really well, and it fits people's uh, personal lives much better. And so do we need everybody in the office from, from nine to five? Um, we're actually getting more work done because things are sort of morphing. There isn't a, there isn't a you know, nine to five. You can sort of start <laughs> when, when it's convenient and some of the stuff gets done. Um, and, and I think that we won't be the only ones who uh, also in the next 12 months will probably formalise some different uh, working practices as a, as a consequence of the, the coronavirus pandemic. So that's an interesting side event. Um, but overall, the uh, for Westfield Medical, um, we will um, we'll, you know, move in a positive direction, I think. 
Um, the other thing I think we'll also develop a lot more is our, our, uh, we, we found because we've done some unexpected work for the NHS, for example, we have a couple of people in our organisation who've used social media uh, to get this message out there. And I think our online presence were, will also um, be a key part of our marketing strategy going forward, whereas it was really something we didn't think about much before. Mm. It seems as if there's plenty of ambition, um, even amid the um, uncertainty, James. And I think you're absolutely right um, in the sense that it will, this uh, whole situation, bring about um, a change in the way that we um, operate um, in the office. And it will be interesting to see how that is uh, borne out. Um, I have to say, it's been an absolute pleasure and really insightful as well having you on uh, today's programme. Thank you so much for your time and coming on to speak with me today. Um, And I also think for the listeners, it would be wonderful if we could perhaps um, revisit this in a few months and have you back on the air just to catch up on how the business is doing and just see how those changes in the way that we work have been implemented. That would be great. Yes, thank you, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure having you, James. Thank you so much again for coming on the programme today. That was James Vero, the CEO of Westfield Medical Group. Um, coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett um, is not only an active member of the House of Lords, but is also a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Um, Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet, and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. Lord Blunkett was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. Uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected. Mm -hmm. In the circumstances, there are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff. And, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all of those who can, Uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you, and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and and, uh, production of goods, and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are 
now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm-hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. 
Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we 
narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and 
social well-being front enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and 
needed some of its policies, uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that 
we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.